Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 14th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today I'm going to present something that I actually wrote six years ago that I couldn't even believe I didn't even have in a podcast yet. Even though the ideas that are going to be expressed tonight are frequently expressed in or throughout all of my presentations, I would like to um, present this as one neat package, especially with the um, the advancing year coming when we start hearing about national elections once again, presidential elections, which should start... <clears throat> winding up in the next 10, 11 months, maybe, I believe. Today I'm going to present actually two blog posts that I wrote in 2009. And I wrote these in response to um, getting out of prison after 12 years of studying Christian identity in prison and, and finding all these people that were basically <clears throat> claiming to be Israel identity, and were really just awake, semi-awakened patriotards out there rooting for Republicans and thinking that somehow we're going to take our nation back at the ballot box. And these two blog posts, which is what they were originally, are entitled, There Is No Political Solution, and Who Is your God, because you sure as hell can't vote for Jesus. <clears throat> and I'm sure that's a cliche that's been around for a while. Two weeks ago, for a segment of Christogenia Europe, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had a frog in my throat for two days. Two weeks ago, for a segment of Christogenia Europe, Sven Longshanks and I did a survey of some of the so-called far-right political parties and other groups in Britain, in Germany, and in France. Practically every single one of them, in fact, there's only one that we found that we believe was um, still pristine in this regard, and that one is a very small party. Every one of these parties, so-called far-right parties, have already announced their obeisance to the Jews. Every single one of them. UKIP, um, BNP is bent over to the Jews. I don't think they've um, actually announced a support for Israel. I don't actually remember the details, but... BNP has embraced a lot of policies that are pro-Jewish, and all of these political parties have all announced support for Israel. But the Jews are the destroyers of Europe, and that's very clear. It's the Jews behind all of the alien immigration into Europe and America, and the Jews brag about that all the time in their own media. Therefore, 
out of all these political parties that are supposedly far-right parties, none of these parties will ever succeed in their stated goals to preserve Europe for Europeans, to defend against Islam. If the Jew is not addressed first, then all endeavors into politics shall fail our race miserably. There is certainly no political solution for whites so long as Jews are accepted in any shape or form. Therefore, it should be obvious that there is no political solution for whites at all. Even in America, groups that claim to desire to defend whites, I'm going to pick on the Council of Conservative Citizens. They should be the Council of Kosher Clowns. I, um, I've been want to make posts from time to time on their website, and they banned me. Imagine that. They banned me from posting on their website. But I post under my own name. I don't post any under, under any aliases. And the Council of Kosher Clowns banned me from their website because I posted things explaining that Jews are not white. I posted a post which they deleted explaining that Ramsey Paul is a Jew. He's admitted being a Jew. So therefore, he is part of the problem. Another Jew trying to control the political dialogue by pretending to be a conservative. That's all he is. And the people at the Council of Conservative or Kosher Clowns, they don't get it. They've bought hook, line, and sinker into the idea that Jews are just other white people. One of the things that Sven Longshanks and I discussed two weeks ago was the German movement. It's more of a movement than it is a party, and that's Pegida. Pegida is an idea stemming from a group by that name which was organized by one man in Dresden, Germany. The name Pegida is an acronym of the German words which mean patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the West. Officially, Pegida has no outspoken position contrary to any government of Europe concerning race or religion. But it only stands against the jihadist, the radical Muslim desire to force Islamic law on Western society, which they actually are trying to do in Europe, especially in France and in, in England. Lutz Bachmann, the founder of Pegida, sounds like the typical American patriotard. He may as well join the Council of Kosher Clowns. Or perhaps, and I'm not sure of this, perhaps even he himself is a Jew, because he sure sounds like one. He says things like, Germany is not a land of immigration. Integration does not mean living side by side, but together on the basis of Judeo, the Judeo-Christian merits 
of our Constitution and our German culture with its Christian Jewish roots, which is all a lie. But the Judeo-Christians are deceived into this. He talks about determined by humanism and enlightenment, that, that German Christian culture. Lutz says that he started the movement because he was disgusted by Kurds in Germany demonstrating against the war in Syria and clashing with Salafist opponents. Pegida accuses the German government of fostering immigration policies that are not conservative enough. Those quotes are from an article on Pegida from Euronews.com. Many, as we pointed out, many anti-Muslim organizations in Europe are not pro-white at all. They are actually only anti-jihadist organizations, and they are founded, or at least funded, by Jews, and thereby the Jews get to control the European right and create many rabbit holes for semi-awakened whites to fall into. It's the same thing here in America. Stormfront, rabbit hole. David Duke, rabbit hole. Alex Jones, rabbit hole. Trapping people who come to some sort of awakening, trapping them into a paradigm of perpetually false solutions. There was a Pegida march in Newcastle, England, which Sen and I discussed at the end of February. Of course, the march was countered by a, by a larger group of protesters, a much larger group, from the anti-fascist far left, who were much better organized than the Pegida marchers. The BBC, the BBC is in reality a Marxist media organization that no true patriot should ever even acknowledge. And the BBC interviewed a Pegida spokeswoman. And this is what they printed in their online article. Pegida UK spokeswoman Marion Rogers said, we are not racist, we are not fascist, we are not far right, and we're certainly not anti-Islam. We've got Muslims here with us today. Isn't that cute? Islamization of the West in our books is extremist Islam, extremist Muslims basically enforcing their beliefs on us and making us feel like second-class citizens in our own country. We want integration, she says. We are not the hate campaign we are made out to be. And another Pegida marcher, quoted in the British newspaper, The Guardian, in their report on this march, had said this, Pegida protester David Hetherington, 51 from South Shields, rejected the label of racism and said, I'm not far right, I'm a patriot. And we would assert that 
David doesn't even understand the meaning, the real meaning of the word patriot. Because to be a patriot, you must be racist. However, the Guardian also quoted an anti-fascist organizer named Tony Dowling, who said, It's a simple message. You're not welcome here. Get off our streets and go home. They say they're not far right, but that they're against the Islamification of the West, which is a bizarre thing to say. It's a weasel word. If you're against, if you're anti-Islam, you're a racist. End of story. That's the viewpoint of the left. The real anti-fascist message which Dowling reflects is this. If you are white and you seek to remain so, you have already been disenfranchised and it's time for you to surrender. European whites evidently have no right whatsoever to defend even their laws or their culture, let alone their race. The counter-demonstrators at the Pegidi UK march had different sorts of signs and banners printed up very professionally all ahead of time. They were well-financed. And they had a great number of these signs and banners which proclaimed, Unite Against Fascism. And in larger and bolder letters on these signs and banners, we see the words, never again, with an exclamation point. Whose phrase is that? With that, it should be absolutely clear as to who is behind the Pegida counter-protests and who is even financing them. Only the Jews lamenting the so-called Holocaust, which never really happened. Only the Jews cry, never again. That is Jewish propaganda, and the Jews are leveraging it so they can accuse any white interested in defending white Christian culture as being an evil Nazi racist. So on one hand, you have the founder of Pegida, Lutz Backman, kissing Jew ass, talking about Judeo-Christian values and Jewish-Christian roots. On the other hand, you have the Jews financing and printing up materials for people protesting, people from the far left protesting against Pegida, saying never again which can only be a reference to their so-called Holocaust. So the German kisses the Jew ass, and at the same time, the Jew has his foot in the German's ass, and he deserves it. This past week, some white college students from the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity at the University of Oklahoma were recorded singing a chant on a bus. Most of the students were freshmen. In part, the words of the chant went, there will never be a nigger in SAE. You can hang them from a tree, 
but he can never sign with me. There will never be a nigger in S-A-E, a reference to Sigma Alpha Epsilon, the initials of the fraternity. When the recording was made public, university administrators immediately closed the frat house and began expelling students at the, and the fraternity itself from the campus. In reality, all the song was about was a desire for racial segregation. Two days later, two white cops were shot in Ferguson, Missouri, as niggers as they've done day after day after day since the, um, the shoplifter got shot trying to attack a cop. As niggers were once again protesting the police station. So what could be the commensurate punishment if the kids in the school are all ejected from the school for their words, then the niggers in Ferguson should all be taken out and shot for their actions. That's the only equal punishment. That would be the only fair thing to do if all are truly equal in the eyes of the law. No doubt. But in the new age of political correctness, equality under the law is only equality for non-whites. If you are black and a student at the University of Oklahoma, you have license to beat women unconscious while it's recorded on tape and even get to keep your spot on the football team regardless of being convicted of the crime. A nigger named Joe Mixon was able to do that very thing just a couple of months ago in February of this year. We didn't bother to check the identity of the victim. She was apparently white from her name. But Mixon broke four bones in her face as he beat her unconscious, and that was also recorded. The victim claimed not to have known Mixon before the altercation. If niggers get away with beating women silly at the University of Oklahoma, <clears throat> then it is no wonder that some whites do not want to associate with them. The Mixon case is only one example. There are certainly others, and they've been reported on at dailycaller.com. Daily we would want to <clears throat> we would want to defend the white students at the University of Oklahoma for their racism. Their racism is natural, and it's a necessary defense to uphold their society. But how can you defend them when they themselves immediately began cowering in the Jewish media firestorm which their actions had ignited? The parents of the students, the two students that were um, identified in the tape, Levi Petit and Parker Rice, both issued lengthy apologies online and in writing, which just made me want to vomit. 
And both portrayed racism as being contrary to their own core values and to their son's character. Oh, they're not really racists. Both apologies are being trumpeted by the media because they characterize racism as being evil. And yet, there's a bunch of black power niggers outside of the homes of these individuals protesting, and they probably are still there. Anti-racism is, in reality, anti-white racism, while at the same time being favorable to non-white racism. Anti-racism is a hypocritical Marxist ideology. Our media is a Marxist media. It's a Marxist media for only one reason. It's controlled by Jews. There are 5,000 black rap songs published and played on media or by media controlled by Jews every year in America. Thousands of them. Kill whitey, kill cops, kill all the white boys, kill all the honkies. Thousands of them. And there's not a peep about it in the Jewish-controlled media because it doesn't play into the Jewish paradigm, which only wants to destroy white civilization. It's easy to defend racism when it comes to niggers especially. They are violent, antisocial beasts. They prove it all the time. Look at Detroit. Look at Philadelphia. But all these whites shirk. They live in fear of being considered racist, even when their racism is excusable, it's legitimate, and it's a defense mechanism. They still fear that label. They fear that label much more than they fear their God. Whites who exhibit a semblance of racial consciousness can't ever seem to be able to defend their racism. Why is it that every time whites get caught saying something racist, they fall all over themselves and they pee in their own panties in a frantic effort to apologize for their allegedly evil ways. And in the meantime, today, tomorrow, another hundred white women will be raped by niggers. Whites cannot defend themselves so long as they are willing to abide by the rules of conduct in political correctness which have been forced onto society by the controlled Jewish media or the Jewish-controlled media, whites will continue to be victims until they can defend themselves. And to do that, they have to step outside of the box and not fear the labels. They have to defend themselves and be determined to defend themselves on their own terms. And whites, because they refuse to do that, will continue to fail. Once one understands that the Jewish-controlled media 
is operating in harmony with Jewish-controlled international banks and corporations, and effectively Jewish-controlled governments everywhere. Only then it is realized that for whites, there is no political solution ever, period. Forget it. The balance of this presentation will be based on a pair of articles written in 2009. And that is the title of the first of those articles. There is certainly no political solution for whites in the condition to which our race has sunk groveling before the Jew so that we don't get labeled as a bad person. There will never be a political solution. Those who insist upon one have an absolute lack of understanding, and they are worshiping the wrong God. Little seems to have changed in the six years since I wrote this article. And in April of 2009, and even now, I hear too many identity Christians grousing over who will be the next Republican presidential candidate, as if we should ever care, or who the Democrats are going to run next year, as if we should ever care. And when you call them on it, they say, well, I was only making conversation. I'm only speculating. Who cares? We shouldn't care. I'd rather talk about the weather. There are apparently many well-mentioned Christians and even identity Christians today who are promoting certain forms of political activism, wishing to reform the government of this once great republic, as if that were ever possible, and to turn it back to the interests of its natural-born citizens. This is where the Council of Conservative Clowns and all the people of that mindset are really just kidding themselves. So we hear of demonstrations, tea parties, appeals to the original constitution of the nation. Well, if the people that wrote it couldn't keep it, how the hell could we ever keep it? The constitution, the original constitution was out the window with George Washington and the Stamp Act. It was out the window with Abraham Lincoln. It was out the window in, with Thomas Jefferson sending sailors to fight in the Mediterranean. The original Constitution was out the window because right there, it wasn't about defending the nation. It was about defending the international commercial interests, the merchants, the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli is about protecting the Jew, not the nation. The Constitution was out the window almost immediately. So forget it. We couldn't keep it 
200 years ago. We sure as hell aren't going to keep it today. We hear about state successions. So if Texas succeeds from the Union, the Jews are going to declare war on it, right? Until they conquer it. The, the end of it will be worse than the beginning. If all the whites move to the Pacific Northwest, the Jews will bomb it. Harold Covington is an idiot. It's a political solution. It will not work because we don't have a political solution. Forget it. None of it's scriptural. And the parasite-infested carcass that was once our body of government certainly cannot ever be reformed. While surely it is possible that the schemers on Wall Street can keep life breathed into this beast for a long time and keep its heart beating, the final outcome is nevertheless inevitable. The Bible says that Babylon shall fall and inevitably Babylon shall fall. Then it's our turn. In the meantime, we shouldn't do anything to perpetuate the peace that has us oppressed. Babylon, the root of the word means confusion. And while surely that is all that we get from our government today, the correlation is much deeper than that. Here are the telltale signs that our Western governments are indeed under the spell and control of the enigma which the Bible calls Mystery Babylon. Let's start with the democratic form of government. It can be traced back way beyond Athens and classical Greece. All the way back to ancient Sumer a district of which Babylon had later become the foremost city. And eventually the area, the name Sumer, was lost to history, and the area became known as Babylonia. That democracy began in Sumer is established in several ancient Mesopotamian inscriptions which describe or mention elements of the democratic process. Therefore, it is not a new idea. There is nothing new under the sun. It didn't start with Athens. And it failed the Athenians. And it has always failed. It always leads to war and eventual tyranny. The Jews love to trumpet the idea that once all the nations of the world are democratic nations, there won't be any more war. Who's heard that one before? It was trumpeted in Europe for a hundred years or better. Once all the nations of the world are democratic nations, the Jew will be in control of them all. <laughs> The Federation of these United States was not founded as a democracy. 
And in fact, until the Wilson administration in World War I, the idea of democracy was seen by just about all educated white men as being antithetical to the idea of the American Republic. The democratic form of government in the 19th century was seen as a subversive form of government. It was the Jewish media which diluted the idea of the republic and the limited powers of a majority in popular conversation so it could push its own model of democracy, which is tantamount to government by prevailing attitudes and popular majority, which is evil because popular majorities deprive minorities of their goods and their property all the time, every time. We see it happening today. We have the popular majority, and niggers are getting all the jobs, and Mexicans are taking over all the property. The Jewish media creates both of these, the prevailing attitudes and the popular majority, by their own power and influence. Throughout history, republics and democracies, Rome was a republic 500 years. Republics and democracies always degenerated into tyrannies. There are no historical exceptions, none, anywhere. Now we live in an age of Jewish supremacism and Jewish tyranny. Anyone who stands against the Jewish paradigm is demonized by the world, which prevents white Christians from standing up for themselves on their own terms because they're too cowardly to be demonized by the world. That's the political form of Mystery Babylon. There's a commercial form, an economic form, and that's our usury-based monetary system. The commercial laws of the West and of Britain and the United States in particular have their origin in the Shetar, a book of the Jews found in the Babylonian Talmud. Scholarly sources have demonstrated that very fact. Usury was a practice forbidden by Christians, forbidden to Christians, and alien to our European ancestors until the Jew was admitted into the lands of our fathers. Therefore, when the Jews needed laws to be protected for their debts, the kings allowed the Jews to produce the laws, and the Jews pulled the shetar out of their Talmud, handed them to the kings. The shetar became the basis for English mercantile law. Mystery Babylon. Economic style. The capitalist system, as it is practiced in the West, is truly Jewish in nature. It was created by Jewish laws. It was designed by Jews. And it is destructive 
to all those who fall victim to it. Because ultimately, the usurers always end up with control of all the property. There's no avoiding that. America was originally a free enterprise economy, which tolerated usury, right or wrong. But it was not originally a usury-based capitalist nation that it became in 1913. There was a significant difference because currency could be produced in a free enterprise system without indebting the people. That would be, I believe, the significant difference. Today, a dollar can't be produced without all of us being in debt. Capitalism is both Jewish and evil, and so long as Christians accept its validity, they will be slaves to the Jewish bankers and their international corporations. We should not, and, and the Jewish media has the entire white world convinced that capitalism is good and communism is bad, and they'll all die to defend Jewish capitalism and usury, things that God hates. That's the economic component of mystery Babylon. The Roman Catholic Church, because that was the church, for a thousand years. The Roman Catholic Church, its rituals, many of its beliefs, many of its beliefs are actually the teachings of, of, of heaven and hell, the way they're taught in the Catholic Church. That comes straight from the Pharisees. The proof is in Josephus's antiquities. No matter what race you are, no matter who you are, you do bad, you go to hell, you suffer forever. You do good, you go to heaven, you're rewarded forever. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. There's no doubt that's a belief of the Pharisees. Josephus described it in the first century. That's where the Roman Catholic Church must have got it from. The Roman Catholic Church, its rituals, many of its beliefs, and its practice of universalism in spite of the specificity of the covenants of Yahweh God of Israel, none of whom are Jews, also may be traced back through the mystery religions of ancient Greece to the more ancient pagan cults of Babylonia and Mesopotamia. The Roman church, in actuality, is a pagan church. It wasn't started as a Christian church that became pagan. It started as a whole collection of pagan temples that became Christian, but never lost their pagan ways. They became Christian in name only. They never converted to Christianity. They maintained all their pagan rituals and grafted Christian labels upon them. 
the Roman Catholic Church was Christian only to the extent of its own spurious claims. Now, there were some authentic Christians amongst the early church, but the pagans won out by far. And for the most part, the temples of Rome that became Christian were originally pagan, and the Roman church from the time of Constantine was an imperialist church. It was designed to be an imperialist church. It has never been the true church of Christ. The apostles and the churches they left behind and their doctrines were anti-imperialist. The Roman Catholic Church was what was developed by pagans who absconded Christianity when, it, when they found it, it could not be eliminated. The real true Church of Christ is actually the Celtic and Saxon and related Christian people as a body, not as an organization. The Protestant sects, which broke off from the Catholic Church, never protested far enough. The Reformation did not reform enough. They merely replaced many Roman church teachings with equally insidious dogmas. And they systematically ignore or even reject sound Christian doctrine. And it's all about their own sort of control. And the purpose of this rundown is to explain that it is certainly evident that Mystery Babylon has political, religious, and economic aspects. And all of those aspects were found in ancient Babylon. And they all rule over our world today. And many of them came through the Jews in one way or another. We can only give a summary of these things here because we would rather discuss the consequences. All of this is driven by one thing. The desire for open border, free trade, and the flow of monies, goods, and people who are themselves only seen as a natural resource to the international Jew, chattel, cattle, by those international merchants and bankers who have no allegiance to any particular race or country, but rather have historically been parasites feeding off of all the other races and countries. And especially, because they tend to be the most productive, especially the white race. All of these religious elements have been worked into Christianity by Jews and converso Jews over centuries. The economic elements, 
The capitalism, the usury practiced by, in Europe by Jews for centuries when they had special protection from the kings of Europe and the princes of, of, of the continent as well as the kings of England protected the Jews as a special class for centuries. And the Babylonian shetar became our commercial law. And it's evil in the eyes of God. Political systems favored by the Jews. Economic systems favored by the Jews. Religious systems which had their origin in Canaanite paganism, which was the real religion of these people calling themselves Jews. It all came from ancient Babylon. That's why the Word of God calls it Mystery Babylon. And it rules over us now. Henry Ford called these people that have pushed this paradigm everywhere they go the international Jew. Adolf Hitler understood that these Jews were behind globalism and the stock market industry, capitalism. The 17th and 18th chapters of the book of Revelation relate Mystery Babylon directly to international trade. That's not a coincidence. Why don't mainstream Christians see that? Anybody, any child that reads Revelation chapters 16 to 18 should be able to see that the international mercantile system is described perfectly in Mystery Babylon. That's not a coincidence. The government of this nation and all of the other so-called democracies has fallen into the control of those international merchants through the central banking systems, which they own and which are in full control of. The Jews are in full control of all those central banks the international Jews. In the city in London, only a select group of families can go into the international banking business. This is a great part of the confusion which the term Babylon intends to describe because the term means confusion. The Bank of England isn't owned by the English. It's never been owned by the English since its founding. It was owned by certain Jewish families. The Federal Reserve is not federal, nor is it a reserve, but rather it is merely just another instrument of those same Jewish families. People respond, oh, it's owned by public companies. Well, that's all well and good. That's a gimmick, too. Those companies are closely controlled by an elite minority, and that elite minority uses devices such as special share classes and voting shares to maintain control of a company, no matter how many 
class A, class B, class C shares, or whatever you want to call them around on the market. These international bankers print our so-called money. If we rely on their money to defeat them politically, how do we outspend the Jews that are the ones who print the money? They can't be outspent. And if they can't be outspent, they can't be outvoted. They print the money. They print all the money they want. They do it all the time. In fact, during World War II, they couldn't print enough money in America. They took the plates to Russia and started printing our money in Russia. You can't outspend the bastards that make the money. How can you kill the bank? Oh, Ron Paul, he's going to kill the bank. No, he's not. He's just another patriotard clown and probably set up by the Jews himself as a safety valve to make people think that there is a political solution. You get sucked in by him, and you're a clown too because there is no political solution. Ron Paul's been pretty comfortable as controlled opposition for 30 years. Now his son's taken over for him. Maybe. Yahweh God created nations and borders. It's in the scripture. It's in the New Testament. Acts 17.26, Deuteronomy 32.8. Yahweh God created nations and borders. It's the goal of Satan to eradicate them confusing the nations in a Babylonian hodgepodge of multiculturalism and diversity. That's the flood, the other races are the flood from the serpent's mouth. The serpent being, of course, the international Jew, the money changers in the temple, the Pharisees who wanted to know who gave John the authority to baptize. It is not a mistake that this program of confusion is only being carried out in white Christian nations. That alone should prove to the average Bible reader that the white Christian nations are the Israel of God and the flood of aliens are the flood from the serpent's mouth. Pretty clear symbology. I don't see evil white people wanting to overrun Kenya with Eskimos. This is only the serpent trying to destroy the people of God. Globalism, multiculturalism, diversity are all programs of the international Jewish merchant. The dragon which gives its power to the beast. The beast being the tyrannies that rule over men. This dragon uses both international capitalism and cultural and social Marxism to achieve its goals. At first, those 
those ideas were polarized and characterized as being adverse to one another. Ever since the wall came down, it's been realized that both situations exist on each side of the wall. So what is a Christian to do? Until we hear the call to arise and thresh, we cannot do much at all. We've a long way to go to get there. First, we have to hear the call to come out of her, my people. For the immediate time, the most sensible thing to do is simply to stop feeding the dragon. Don't get engaged in a political process. You can't vote for anybody who's righteous. There's no point in becoming a flag-waving patriotard when you know that the government is corrupt and the government is collaborating with the enemies of God to destroy your race. Scripture commands that a Christian be separated from the cares of the world. How does a Christian get involved in a political process that includes Jews, niggers, spicks, chanks? Yeah, I said it. You're not supposed to have fellowship with darkness if you're a Christian. Christians must be separated from the cares of the world. As the Apostle James informs us, adulterers, adulterers, do you not know that the love of society is hatred for Yahweh? James isn't calling people that love society adulterers because they're sleeping with other men's wives. He's calling them adulterers because you cannot worship God and mammon. You cannot care about the world and choose the things to please God. You can't do it. You can't get involved in a mystery Babylonian political system and care for the things of God. You can't have two masters. That's why James is calling people who love the world adulterers. He, therefore, who would desire to be a friend of society establishes himself as an enemy of Yahweh. No true Christian is voting in the next political party primary. No way. If you do, you should seriously reconsider that now. Or at least reconsider your motives. This is also evident in many other places in the Gospels this attitude which James professes here. He who would desire to be a friend of the world establishes himself as an enemy of God. 
rather than trying to somehow take back the corrupted system of government. Wow, I hear that from way too many Christians. Christians are explicitly told to separate themselves from the corrupt society. Paul of Tarsus says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living God. Just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them, and be separated, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. Revelation chapter 18, verses 4 and 5. And I heard another voice from out of heaven saying, You come out from her, my people, that you should not partake in her sins, and that you would not receive from of her wounds. Because her sins have built up as far as heaven, and Yahweh has called to mind her injuries. A serious study of history in Revelation reveals that that's the point in the plan of God which our people are in right now. Revelation chapter 17 says that Yahweh would put it in their hearts to hand their kingdom over to the beast to do his will. We're in that period. We've given our kingdom over to the beast. That happened during the time from the Bank of England to the time of the Federal Reserve. There's no taking back the kingdom. There's no political solution. You can't outspend the devil when he owns the printing press. It's not going to be taken back, taken back lightly. And it's never going to be taken back at a polling station. Rather than attempting to take back Babylon, which we, which real Christians shouldn't even want back, the scripture instead commands first an obedience to the laws of Yahweh their God and he will heal our nation. That's the promise. That's the only solution. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and it shall come to pass that if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I commanded thee this day, that Yahweh thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, and the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep, 
Blessed shall be the, thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Yahweh shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The only question is, how many patriotards, how many clowns like David Duke, how many clowns like Alex Jones or Ron Paul or other men that think they have a human solution, that think that they could reason with devils, that think they could outvote the devil at the ballot box. How many of those clowns are going to come and go down the memory hole to the pits of hell before white people realize that the only solution is to turn to their God? For now, Yahweh knows that we are in captivity and that we can only do so much, but we should seek to do his will. The children of Israel are told. The children of Judah are told. In Jeremiah chapter 29, this captivity is long. Build ye houses and dwell in them and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. So he knows we're in captivity. And he knows that we're stuck in it until Babylon falls. So we don't sin by feeding our families and working for a living and doing the things that we have to do to get by. But we still aren't going to get out of this mess without turning to obedience in God, to those Ten Commandments and that Christian morality found in Christ. Only the children of Israel can be obedient. This is because only the children of Israel were ever given the law, circumcised hearts, the law inscribed in their hearts, redeemed, cleansed, and purchased by the blood of Yahshua Christ. This applies only to the Celtic, Saxon, and white, related white Christian nations, all of whom indeed descended from the Israelites of the Old Testament. Being obedient, we can't have communion with the unclean. We can't have communion with the alien races. We should want to segregate ourselves. We should want to be racist. We shouldn't be afraid of the label. It's the only way we can please our God. The Jews are behind all of the immigration of aliens into white nations. Those international bankers are the serpent who have caused the flood of aliens to overcome the white nations. They're all going to vote next year. All those Somalians... And all those Mexicans that Obama led into this country over eight years, they're all going to vote three or four times each in the next election. 
We have no political solution to that. Peter told our predecessors, those Aryan Christians of Anatolia, of Asia Minor, that we were an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. When Christians seek to be that again and keep the commandments of Christ, which aren't hard to do at all, only then can we look for our God to get us out of this mess. And then we will hear the call to arise and thresh. It should be wholly evident that the Christian should separate himself from the beast, from the unclean, from all the programs of international Jewry. We can't completely get out of the society. We have to work. We have to pay taxes. We have to keep a home and raise a family. We don't pay. Or we, when we have to deal with Caesar, we should keep it to an absolute minimum. One doesn't have to keep feeding the dragon in order to manage his household. Christ told us to render to Caesar the things of Caesar and to Yahweh the things of Yahweh. So there's things that while we're in this long captivity, build houses, plant gardens, do the things that you have to do. But all of the Jewish entertainments all of the um, Jewish political enticements, the movies, the television programs, the news, everything the Jew makes in Hollywood and New York, we don't need any of those. The Christian should separate himself from all of those things. And you shouldn't care who's going to run in the next election. You shouldn't care one whit, and you certainly shouldn't go vote. Stop buying those newspapers. Stop buying those magazines. Stop paying to see Jewish movies. Come out from that. Stop buying those pop music records. VHS tapes. The Jews are taking your money and buying knives with it to stick in your back. Organized sports. If you can't stop watching niggers on a football field getting paid to run around in Nikes, carry a ball, if you can't do that, how should God trust you with the kingdom of heaven? If you can't stop worshiping niggers on TV, how could God trust you with, with the kingdom of heaven? Forget it. You're not worthy of it. Christians should have no part in any of the promotion or support of that. And it's the same thing with the Jewish movies. The Jewish owned and operated mainstream press. The Jewish television 
programs. Christians should have no part in any of that. And it's all propaganda. It's all propaganda that meets the Jewish objective of molding you into their paradigm so that you think within the acceptable boundaries of thought. And then you can't defend your racism. How do you defend your racism when you're worshiping niggers on a football field? You can't defend your racism. That's one of the um, buzz topics that came out of this Oklahoma University debacle. Oh, those white people are racist, but they love black football players when they do well. Whites shouldn't even be watching football. White Christians shouldn't be watching football. White Christians should not be going to football stadiums. It's idolatry. You're not coming out from among them if you're standing there cheering them on when the monkey's carrying a ball up a field. Nope. That's idolatry. White Christians should expose all these things to their friends and family and inform them of their idolatry. Inform them of the usury, the idolatry, the evil things that they do that, they do that assist in the destruction of our civilization. We should love our brethren. Charity begins at home. We shouldn't give anything to those international charities that magnify non-Christian heathens at the expense of white Christians. And at the same time, they give plenty of comfortable jobs away to Jews. So all our charities should be at home with our kin and our, our white Christian neighbors. But every, everything that we, um, we can buy from our white Christian neighbors, we should also do. We should buy as little as possible from Walmart. We should always try to buy things locally to try to look out for our own communities. It's hard. It's hard to um, even buy an article of clothing that doesn't come from China. It's crazy. But we should do what we can to support our white brethren. That's loving your brother. That's Loving your brother is economic as much as it is anything else. Paul told Roman Christians to prefer one another without hesitation, which means to hire white Christians, to buy things from white Christians, to communicate with white Christians at the expense of everybody else. That's one of the biggest um, failures I've seen, even amongst identity Christians, is the ability, and we all fail. I fail at it. We all fail at it. 
the ability to transfer our profession of the faith into our daily economic trans- transactions, that's a difficult thing. Because mostly I believe it's because we all, identity Christians anyway, live so far apart from our fellow believers. So that makes it very difficult. But it's something we should always consider, and it's something that we should always try to do when we can. There's an old saying that all politics is local, and this is true, and this question comes up quite often. If one feels a need to get involved in the community, to do it at a local level is good if one is doing it for the purposes of spreading our Christian profession and setting a good example of that profession before our brethren, before the people, the white people of our community. But national politics, state politics, all the um, political venues that are poisoned by Jewish money, and often in, in a lot of large cities, that's local politics as well. There's no hope in that, in, in that politics, none whatsoever. And there's really usually no purpose for Christians to be there. There's always the occasional exception. But usually there's no purpose. It's futile to participate in the reform of a, a system that's totally corrupted by the devil is futile. We're not supposed to take back Mystery Babylon. We don't want it back. It needs to be destroyed. This political system needs to be destroyed. The only solution is in Revelation chapter 19. That leads me to another topic. Shortly before um, writing the essay at Christogenia entitled, There is No Political Solution, I wrote another essay, which was shorter. It was March 2009, and the title was, Who is Your God? And it was aimed at addressing people that turn to the government for solutions. We shouldn't turn to the government for solutions. Christians should never expect solutions from government. It's very clear in the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures that governments, non-godly governments, exist to punish Israel, the children of Israel, for their sins. Government is a punishment from God. It's never a solution for Christians. Investigating the writings of the founders of this nation, 
The ideas of plurality, which they had, did not include any thoughts of multiculturalism or a diversity of aliens, which are the supposed ideals of this day, but which in reality are little more than a fulfillment of the perverse fantasies of the Antichrist Jews. I have one example. Benjamin Franklin, in the late in the 18th century, had hypothesized concerning how many Englishmen could possibly populate such a large country in a little time. And he even wanted to exclude kindred Germans, who he called Palatine Boers. Discussing the importation of African slaves, Franklin stated, why increase the sons of Africa, where we have so fair an opportunity by excluding all blacks and tawnies of increasing the lovely red and white, meaning the ruddy people of Europe. Franklin's express views may not reflect all of the beliefs of all the founders of this nation, yet they are a clear and true reflection of the general principles among them, that when they said freedom of religion, they meant freedom of Christian religion. They failed by not specifying. And that any reference to plurality only meant a plurality of white people. They failed by not specifying. They did specify in one place. The preamble to the original Constitution for the United States of America says that its purpose is to ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And the word posterity at that time meant offspring and nothing else. If the government were to fulfill its constitutional purpose, then the sons of Africa, as Franklin called them, should all be exterminated tomorrow because they are not a part of the posterity of any of the signers, and because all they ever do is destroy the domestic tranquility. If the government were to do its job, there wouldn't be a nigger in the whole country. You want to restore the Constitution? That's what it should lead to. We know that as long as we are poisoned by the Jew, it'll never happen. Not in a million years. By the second half of the 19th century, much of the political class in this nation was already composed of corrupt men who would read Marx rather than Paul of Tarsus and who worshipped the Jewish gods of secular humanism rather than the Aryan god of Abraham and David. The reasons for this rather abrupt change in the quality of American leadership 
is succinctly described in the parable of the trees of the forest, as told by Jotham, and recorded in Judges chapter 9 of our Bibles. There's an interpretation of that parable found at Christiania on the front page right now, has been for several weeks, in an article entitled Bible or Bureaucracy. It's like a 10-minute podcast, 15-minute podcast. The Parable of the Trees of the Forest. Yahweh God told us in Judges chapter 9 that if we, if we chose men to rule over us as kings, we were guaranteed, it was absolutely inevitable that we were going to get the scum of the earth, the lowest, most useless of men to be our rulers. And history has proven God to be absolutely correct. It's no coincidence that a single American president who was the first to fully and publicly grasp on to the ideas of Jewish internationalism, Woodrow Wilson, gave this nation not only the Jewish-owned and operated Federal Reserve Bank to be the stewards of our economy, but he also gave this nation the first Zionist and radical Jew Supreme Court Chief Justice, Louis Brandeis. Woodrow Wilson did that for us. He gave us our first involvement in a European war. He gave women the so-called right to vote, which is clearly anti-Christian. Yes, women voting is anti-Christian. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 and 34. No outside enemy could ever have damaged the Republic the way Woodrow Wilson damaged it from the inside. And he also paved the way for many of those who came after him to cause it even more damage. The so-called Great Depression was a direct result of the turning over of the economy of this nation to the international Jew under the guise of the Federal Reserve Banking System. And with the Depression, a different form of politics, that of giving one's vote to whoever could promise one the largest portion of other men's money, finally allowed the unscrupulous to consistently capture the majorities of the electorate. This phenomenon was greatly assisted both by the woman voter, because the vast majority of them tend to make such decisions based on their natural empathy, and the, large, and the introduction of large numbers of aliens into the electorate once the immigrants from the fringes of Europe, who didn't have the Protestant experience, they didn't have the American pioneer experience. They were Catholics for the most part. And they started coming to America in significant numbers at the end of the 19th century, along with 
very significant numbers of Jews. The first great beneficiary of the demographic changes in America was Franklin Roosevelt. How far we had already fallen by this time from the ideals upon which the Republic was founded. The founding fathers of the nation were certainly readers of the Greek and Roman classical histories. Surely they must have been aware of the way politicians quickly learned to use promises of favors or money to aliens and minorities as a means of helping to secure votes at the expense of the patrician class. Roman history has examples. And it's the patrician class, the true middle class, from whom most of the funds available to the state are actually raised. In the history of Rome, Livy tells the story of one Spurius Cassius, a Roman politician of the 5th century B.C., who had attempted to curry the favor of certain divisions among the people by promising them monies from the state treasury. And when the Roman people found out, they condemned and executed him for that very reason. Spurius Cassius, executed because he was a politician promising people other people's money. The Romans understood that. Americans forgot it. Spurious Cassius set an example for centuries to come. If we had only learned from that example, who knows the course of this nation? If Americans had been so vigilant in 1913 when the Federal Reserve was formed, or in 1933 when the Marxist New Deal was launched, or in 1964 when the Marxist Great Society speech was given, those politicians should have been the spurious Cassius of our time. Roosevelt, Wilson, and Johnson. But it never happened. Our forefathers never marched on Washington. So we are where we are today. There's no political solution. Now, this was a simplification of American history, but it's provided for a purpose other than to discuss politics. Rather, it is how Christians even make political decisions which must be discussed, because that is the root of the problem. For over 100 years, politicians have been running on platforms promising giveaways of one sort or another, or security of one form or another. And this trend has plunged our nation deeper and deeper into tyranny, which is why we are where we are at. I'm sorry, I tripped over myself. When Christians relied on God for their sustenance and security, that was the pioneer experience. That was the experience of the first settlers to New England, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, the South. Christians relied on God for sustenance and security. 
And when they did that, they were relatively free to live and work as they chose. And this great nation resulted from that very freedom which our founders intended for us to have or to maintain. And economic freedom to the fruits of our labors and the freedom to live in an environment adapted to our own state of morals in which we worship our God in the manner in which we ourselves choose and not at the dictation of either Rome or the state. They were the ideals upon which the nation was founded. Of course, they were men, and their plans were far from perfect and were doomed to fail. That's part of the lesson we must learn that we cannot rule ourselves. Only our God can rule over us. But Christians no longer rely on God. That's why we have gay marriage. And every other perversion under the sun is going to be legalized in the decades to come. When people rely upon the state for sustenance and security... The state seeks, in turn, to regulate the lives of the people. The state then gains the right to dictate morality and the terms of acceptable behavior. The state becomes the god of the people because people rely on the state for sustenance and security. It's inevitable. It has to happen. It's totally unavoidable. The state becomes the god of the people because the people grant to the state that authority to solve their problems, to take care of them. Subsequently, the state demands more and more of the fruits of the labors of the people. Americans kept 100% of their income before 1913, continued to pay relatively very little in taxes up until the time of the Great Society. And now, typically, over half of the income of the average working American is eaten away by both direct and hidden taxes. The God of the Bible only asked for a tenth at most. And that was of one's increase, not of one's income. Over the past hundred or so years, at the same time that the state has slowly become the God of the people, the state has slowly torn down the moral barriers of the old God, the God of the Bible, and has replaced the morality of Christianity with a new morality, the morality of diversity, inclusion, and multiculturalism. It's only inevitable. Old taboos such as divorce, homosexuality, miscegenation have become the norm. And they are even protected from Christian admonition by legislation. The momentum of the growth and development of this nation, which has lasted into this century, was spurred by the many freedoms achieved upon our foundation. 
And while white Christians are still the backbone of all meaningful progress today, that backbone now has several severe deficiencies and is gravely ill due to the many parasites which infest the body. As it gets weaker and weaker with each passing year, finally the aliens are on the threshold of overrunning the founding race of this nation. While an alien sits in the highest political office. From this situation, there is no political redemption. The Saxon has only one choice for salvation, to abandon the government god and the religious doctrines of Jewish capitalism and humanism, inclusion, tolerance, multiculturalism, along with the wanton rights, the rights of wanton consumerism. The Saxon must abandon all of those things and return to the God of the Bible and Christian fundamentals with a humble and contrite heart. If you look to the government for solutions, the government is your God. And the government dictates morality to you because that's what God does. When you look to Yahweh God and follow his morality and his law, only then will we have a solution. But it sure as hell won't be political. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land, not their government, their land. 2 Chronicles 7.14 the words are often even quoted by Judeo-Christians who don't realize the impact of the words or the consequences. So we don't have a political solution. Forget it. The only reason why I ever talk about politics on the Christiania program is to illustrate that very thing. I'm sure I'll do it again soon, in the near future, probably on Christiania Europe maybe even here, only because it's my goal to continually illustrate the point that we, as white people, have no political solution. So therefore, we shouldn't be involved in politics. Christians should come out from among them and be separate. Do that now. And it won't be so hard when we must do it. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night. I will be here Friday night. 2 Corinthians, part 4. Here, Connor, this is for you. I like sugar and I like tea, but I don't like me.
neighbors know the reason. There's two long things that'll make me cute. That's a hog eating flop there. Lots of trouble with his baboon mouth. He's a doing. It's called by the trouble. He's a brewing. And the end of a lazy beat. And being every white mystic with a nigger hating me. Hey, Mr. President, what do you say? When are we whites going to have our day?